Hey everybody, what's up? This is Chase Jarvis. Welcome to an episode of the Chase Jarvis Live Show here on Creative Live. This is the show where I sit down with the world's most incredible humans. I unpack their brain with the goal of helping you live your dreams. And today's guest is Dr. Mark Epstein. Dr. Epstein is a psychiatrist in private practice in New York City and the author of a number of books that help us understand and reconcile Eastern wisdom with Western medicine and Western science generally. This is an incredible conversation. We talk about cultivating a healthy relationship with our ego, why ego is both good and bad, how it's our are the thing that keeps us uh, alive. It has biological functions, but it also undermines so much of what we want to do in this life that we have, this one precious life. Um, in this episode, we talk about the difference between doing, which Western culture is obsessed with, and being. How, are you, how, how does one be content, whether or not we're succeeding, whether or not we're being recognized uh, for our pursuits on a day-to-day business? There is more to life than that. And importantly, we talk about how meditation and therapy, the combination of those two things specifically, can train the mind to deal with the unpredictable world that we all live in. This is a super powerful episode. I'm very excited about both the tradition that Mark come from and the work that he's done in the Western world to unite this in what I think is a super profound way. Enjoy this episode, yours truly, with Dr. Mark Epstein. This episode of the Chase Jarvis Live Show is brought to you by Creative Live. Creative Live is the world's largest and best platform for creative and entrepreneurial education. Creators and entrepreneurs, hobbyists to full-time professionals, they've all leveled up with their careers and their lives through taking courses on Creative Live. And to be fair, they also make this show happen. They make it possible. And if you don't know anything about Creative Live, I encourage you to check it out right now. This is where Pulitzer Prize winners, New York Times bestsellers, the best of the best teach photography, video, art, design, music, and audio, craft, and maker classes plus the ability to make a living and a life in any one or all of those disciplines. Now, you all know that I'm a huge believer in the power of habits, and you've probably heard me talk on the show about how small daily choices add up to design and create the life that we actually live. Now, Creative Live, as a sponsor here in this announcement, wants you to know that they have a new powerful way to make education a part of your daily routine. How can you get the Creator Pass? And with a Creator Pass, you can find new areas to develop your skills. You don't have to worry about just buying one class. This allows you to improve your craft, consider making money if you want to with whatever it is that you're trying to do, to pull on your own threads of curiosity and explore. If you're ready to invest in yourself and take the reins for this one precious life that you've got, then subscribing to Creative Live is designed to push you in this direction. Sign up for Creative Live today. Dr. Mark Epstein, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Chase. It's a pleasure, of course. Uh, I shared with you before we started recording that um, my wife and I are big fans. My wife is a longtime Zen practitioner. And of course, your work is this amazing commingling between sort of Western and Eastern. Uh, But rather than me try and explain you and your work, you've been talking about it for your entire life. So for those who may be unfamiliar with your work, give us an introduction, a little bit of a background on uh, who you are and where you like to focus your energy and attention. Sure. Well, I'm a a Western-trained psychiatrist, which means uh, I went to medical school in order to become a therapist 
which is a kind of roundabout way of becoming a therapist, you know. Um, uh, uh, but it's, it turned out to have been a good path. Uh, but the unusual thing about my background was that before I went to medical school with the idea of becoming a psychiatrist, I uh, was deeply immersed in the study and the practice of, of Buddhism, in particular mindfulness meditation. Uh, and I, I discovered that early on, like when I was you know, 18, 19 years old, when I first got to college. And I was lucky enough to meet a number of the first Western translators and practitioners of Buddhist thought and practice. And I studied with them, became friends with them, traveled in Asia with them, and did long, long meaning two-week retreats with them um, uh, for you know, six or seven years before deciding I, I had to figure out what to do with my life. Um, and that's when I, you know, went back and took all the science courses to go to medical school, went to Harvard Medical School. Uh, I was one of only, I think, two people in my class of 100 or so who wanted to be a psychiatrist. Um, so then I was, so I got, a, you know, good training in, uh, in, in Western psychotherapy, but I was always looking at it through the prism of what I had already learned about Buddhist thought. So, um, and, and um, uh, despite all of that good training in Western psychiatry and whatnot, they don't really teach you how to be a therapist. They, uh, they follow the medical model where w one day you're, you're the psychiatrist and they give you a patient and you close the door and you're there with the patient and you have to function. So I was always drawing from the very beginning on what I had learned from meditation, uh, deciding that... Uh, you know, I had learned how to look at my own mind. So what if I tried to apply that to looking at somebody else's mind and heart, you know, looking at their emotional life? Uh, and so gradually I realized that I was at this nexus between the two worlds and that I would try to start writing about, uh, you know, how Buddhist thought was actually applicable or how it complemented Western psychotherapy. And, uh, and the writing trying to write about it forced me to think about it and to consolidate my ideas about it. And that launched me on uh, uh, what I used to think about as a kind of translation of Buddhist thought into the language of Western psychotherapy. Um, and uh, now I've written a lot and now a, a new book about that, that maybe we can talk about some. Yes, I will drop the title here. That the new book is The Zen of Therapy, Uncovering a Hidden Kindness in Life. Uh, and it is exquisite. I want to say congratulations. But before we go too much into the book, you there was a lot in that in that intro, yeah, which I find <laughs> no, no. This is this is look at first of all, this is long form. This is exactly what we want. And second of all, okay. a lot means that uh, I find you know as I endeavor to do with guests in the show, the background is myriad. Your interests are uh, different than the mainstream. And that is what makes you, you, that is, that is the reason you are on the show. So yeah. first you mentioned, um, studying with some of the folks who were original in transit in, in translating, I think you used the word, yeah. some of that Western, Western thought into, or sorry, Eastern thought into a Western mindset. Um, I'm wondering if you could name drop so that we can orient so folks may yeah. be aware of some of these folks or, uh, who are some of the folks you studied with and uh, you know, early on, and what was the sort of the time frame that that yeah. was emerging? Yeah, no, I'd be I'd be happy to because um, 
I'm, I'm completely indebted to all of these people who, who really were there for me when I was trying to figure myself out and uh, both of these worlds out. So, and I lucked into all of these people. So I'm, uh, I, I'm, I'm very grateful to all of them. So I, I got to, um, to college, to Harvard in 1971. So 1971 uh, in Cambridge was sort of like still the 60s, or it was the end of the 60s. And uh, I, I knew I wanted to um, focus on psychology. Somehow I had the idea even then of being a therapist, that it, it was work, but it wasn't real work, you know, sitting and talking with people. I knew that was something I could do. Um, but the, so the Department of Psychology at Harvard in those days had been roiled. It had been, there had been a big uproar before I got there. Timothy Leary and Richard Alpert, the, uh, the avatars of LSD, uh, had been there in the 60s uh, in this very department that I was wanting to study in. And the, uh, the, the professor, the tenured professor who had both hired Leary and Alpert and then had to fire them, was still there and was one of my professors. And um, a year or two into my time there, I found out that this professor, who was a very austere figure that we were all kind of afraid of, uh, that he and his wife, who was a painter, lived in a, uh, the highest house on the highest hill uh, in Cambridge, and that he was still in touch with Richard Alpert, who had gone to India uh, and become Ramdas. Um, this professor of mine, David McClellan, was still in touch with Ramdas and had kind of turned his house into a commune of sorts uh, for all of the uh, people around, the, the, the hippies around Ramdas uh, who were back and forth from India. So uh, once I discovered that, I was over there as much as I was in, in school. So, uh, and I got to know Ramdas very early on who uh, took an interest in me because there I was at Harvard studying psychology, uh, but I was a generation behind him. So I didn't need to embrace the counterculture with the same 100% uh, uh, devotion. You know, I could straddle the middle um, and, and stay in school, et cetera, but still study uh, uh, all of the stuff on the side. So, so Ramdas was a big influence from the beginning. And then there was a, graduate student teaching fellow in one of the first uh, psychology classes that I took, uh, whose name was Daniel Goleman. And um, he went on to become the uh, psychology writer for the New York Times. And then he wrote uh, a bestseller called Emotional Intelligence um, that many people have read and has affected the business oh, world yes. and so on. Um, but yes. in those days, he was a graduate student at Harvard in psychology. And I walked into the section the, the way the classes worked was that there would be a big lecture uh, and then it was broken up into smaller groups that were run by graduate students. So he was my graduate student. I walked in and there was this um, guy with long frizzy hair and he was wearing purple bell-bottom pants. And, uh, and I knew basically from the pants that uh, he, had, he knew something that I wanted to know. And I, I made friends with him, gravitated towards him. And it turned out that he had already been in India with Ramdas had come back to uh, to Harvard and was interested in um, uh, not just mental illness but mental health. You know, trying to uh, trying to describe, trying to talk about what these exceptional, uh, spiritually evolved people that he had met in India already like what made them special. What what 
Uh, but there was no support for that at Harvard. The professors there all thought that he was off on the wrong track. And, you know, but, but I made friends with him. And he, and I said, how do you, where did, where did you learn? How can I learn what you know, you know? And he said, well, if you want, if you want to uh, pursue that, you should go out to uh, Boulder, Colorado this summer uh, to this place called Naropa Institute, because all these friends of mine are going to be teaching there. So I, I listened to him and went. And Naropa Institute in 1974 was sort of like the last vestiges of the counterculture. Uh, it was, it was, the faculty was, was, um, it was run by a, a, a renegade Tibetan Lama who, uh, named Chogyam Trumpa, alcoholic Tibetan Lama, but brilliant, uh, who had been educated at, uh, at Cambridge or Oxford and then come to America. And he got Ramdas to come and teach there. Gregory Bateson was there. John Cage was there. The, the whole New York art world, of which I was uh, ignorant of, you know, dance, famous uh, modern dancers, psychologists, hippies, musicians, you know, it was like, it was like uh, heaven. Um, so I went out there and, and I, I was sort of frightened of uh, the Tibetan Lama because uh, the alcoholism was poking through. Uh, but um, there were two, three uh, mindfulness teachers who just back from Asia, uh, Joseph Goldstein, Jack Cornfield, and Sharon Salzberg. And they were all like, uh, Sharon was my age, which was like 21, 20, 21. Joseph Goldstein and Jack Cornfield were like 30 already. And they had been in the Peace Corps and then stayed on in Asia and studied uh, Joseph for seven years, Jack in a Thai monastery for several years. They studied with these Asian uh, teachers and they were just back in America and they had been recruited to come to Naropa to teach. And I took all of their classes and uh, made friends with them. They seemed the most uh, intelligent and together people that I, that I found there. And they started teaching retreats together, Jack Cornfield and Joseph Goldstein and Sharon Salzberg. And I went on all their first retreats. Um, so I was like the young acolyte and they seemed like all grown up, you know, but they were like 30 years old. Um, and I followed them around. Um, I was still in college, but I, I, I took independent studies and did the retreats. And then I wrote my senior thesis on Buddhist psychology. And, uh, and then I went to Asia with them. Uh, I traveled with them after I graduated from college. And we went to uh, uh, Bodh Gaya, the village in India where the Buddha was enlightened. And I met Joseph's teacher. We went to Burma and I met Joseph's teacher's teacher, who was Mahasi Sayadaw. Uh, 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 we met up with Ramdas and went to Thailand and went to the monastery on the Lao border where Jack Cornfield had studied with a teacher named Ajahn Shah. Uh, I went to Dharamsala and, and uh, uh, met the Dalai Lama for the first time. So, uh, and then I, then I came back and went to medical school and started my medical training. So that's, that's the background. Well, if for those who may be new to that world, uh, what you just got from <laughs> Dr. Mark there was a tour of all of the most influential uh, people in that space. You just literally named every person that I could ever name uh, and that you just worked directly with them for them. Um, so the, the nice thing about all that, in, in addition to, you know, like I received a big download of information, but uh, I got to know all these people as friends, you, you know, 
so any any um, uh, motivation that I might have had to idealize them, you, you know, like that these are realized beings or something. They they were just people. They were just they were they were just all struggling, you know, with their relationships, with what it meant to be a teacher, with being in America, you, you know, with being human, and that, and that was such a relief to me because. It, it let me. It showed me that I just had to be myself, and I and and that and you know I I wasn't so sure I wanted to be myself. You know I would rather be somebody else, but uh, there was there they, they uh, 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 it, th- that was really the, uh, the the greatest teaching of all. You know that uh, you you could be um, pursuing all of this stuff, but you had to do it from a true place, not not from a pretend place. Yeah. Uh, and again, speaking to those watchers and listeners right now, if, if this podcast as it unfolds and you're interested, obviously I'm, I'm having Mark on the show because of the profound impact that he's had on culture and his work. Also all the names that he's dropped there, uh, basically a life of study, uh, just reading the works of those people. Um, and it's interesting how so much of this does come back to Ram Dass. My wife and I went to his funeral in, oh, in Maui. My wife, my, well, my wife studied under him, and uh, really? and and Jack Cornfield as well. And uh-huh. the, to 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 have had a relationship with those folks is incredible. Um, Ram Dass. Well, but, the thing the thing about Ram Dass was that he would for many years he was always pretending to be the person you, you know that he was uh, wanting to be. Uh, and then struggling on the side. But I went to visit him the year before he died, and, and I hadn't seen him in 20 years, and stayed in his house for a couple of days and spent time with him. And he had really become the person that he was always a spot. He really had. So and the impact that he's having now after passing away and on the culture is oh. pretty interesting to see because he had it faded is. out. You know, he had faded out in terms of, uh, but, he's, but now he's coming back. It's interesting. It is. It is. And so clearly you've studied with, um, I don't know what you would call it first generation yeah. Buddhists coming back to the, coming back to the Western culture. And part of what, uh, a, a very common thread on the show, uh, my, my goal, as I mentioned, is hosting a huge array of people from all kinds of different backgrounds, artists, to athletes, to spiritualists, to scientists and everything in between one extremely common thread of what I call some of the most interesting and top performing people in the world in each of their fields is some practice of meditation or mindfulness and awareness uh, and, and time spent on, on being, if you will. Mm -hmm. And I'm, Mm -hmm. and my, my hope to start this conversation out is why is that? So why is there this, this there's something magical in that water that uh it helps people become the biggest best most interesting unique perhaps versions of themselves what and i'm i'm putting western words on an eastern concept here so mm-hmm. you know feel free to to slap it around a little bit but what is it and why should anyone who's listening be attracted to this process of, of meditation, mindfulness, awareness practice? Mm-hmm. Well, I think I could answer it in a couple of different ways. But, um, but the, first, the first way that comes to my mind is that for most of us, 
brought up, I don't think it's a Western thing. I think it's just as true in the East, but for, for most of us brought up in the world as like, you know, human beings who were trying to exist in the world, um, we're, we're driven by our egos and, and we're living sort of on the surface of ourselves, you know, like, like we're, we're just trying to cope with being a person and getting along in the world and, you know, getting through school or what, what family, whatever it is. And we, we need our egos, you know, which are um, uh, both helping us cope, but also imprisoning us in, in sort of the day-to-day -day ruminating, worrying anxieties of our own minds. And uh, all of us, uh, we're much deeper than that. You know, there's much more going on inside all of us than, than the superficial layers that we're mostly existing in. So I remember in my in an early psychiatry rotation, I, I had a teacher who, who asked me, um, you know, it was a one-on-one -on -one dialogue with him, meeting him for the first time. He's like, he was testing me. He's like, what's the unconscious, you know? And I, I was like, oh, what's the unconscious? And I, and I pulled sort of from my meditation, from my retreat experience. And I was like, the unconscious is like the repository of mystery. I remember that was my answer to him, the repository of mystery. And this guy, Western psycho, he loved that answer. Like, like from then on, you know. Uh, so, I, so I think that, you, you know, that we're, there, there's so much inside of us that we don't know. And the, the mindfulness practices, the meditation practices of whatever form, whether they're from a, a religious tradition or whether someone just discovers them from out walking in nature, you know, um, they clue us into something beyond the ego or underneath the ego, or they allow the unconscious, whatever that means to someone to, they allow us to inhabit ourselves more fully is what I would say. That's the gift of it. And, and so that, that can be very inspired. One can find inspiration in inhabiting oneself more fully. So the idea of ego, I, I'd like to trot that out a little bit because for those who may not be trained in the, in the, the traditions that ego is the, how, how would you describe ego rather so that people, uh, you know, is it the voice in your head is the thing that's telling you to sit up straight and to, you know, suck in your gut and to be a, be a, be good at stuff. And, and, you know, what, it, what how would you describe ego for those people so that we can realize that it, it, it basically is in all of us. And it is, you know, as you said, it's important, but it's also potentially our, one of our biggest enemies. It, I think it's both. It's our, it's our greatest friend in a certain way and our biggest enemy. Uh, in that we all, like around age three, four, five, you know, that's when in terms of psychological development, the ego starts to come into play because the demands on a, on a young child start to increase. So the, the ego is, um, uh, it's like that aspect of our minds that's, that's mediating, uh, if that word makes sense, be between the, the, the inner uh, demands, the inner drives, you know, like your emotional life and the external demands like society, school, your parents, your, your siblings. Like you have to learn how to get along in the world and be a person and you have to manage 
everything that's going on inside of you, which is like your sexuality and your anger. And, uh, uh, you know, you have to learn how to go to the bathroom properly and uh, how to read. And so, so the, the, the ego is like the, the internal manager, you, you, you know, uh, and it, it plugs into your thinking. So uh, in, in order to like to plan for tomorrow and to, uh, to deal with the, uh, uh, the, the frustrations that one has, your, your, you, the way that you're thinking about everything is really important. And so your, your ego and your thinking mind, they, 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 they're, they're connected for sure, if they're not exactly the same thing. Um, so, and the sense of self, like who, who am I? Uh, how do I, how do I uh, convey what's my identity? How do I convey myself in the world? That's all the job of the ego. Uh, so you can see how important that is, but also how restricting that can become uh, because the, the, the ego tends to, uh, tends to see itself as both the most important thing in the world, like I'm, I have to take care of myself, uh, but also it's like me against little me against this whole big world out there. So it's, it's inherently uh, dualistic. It sets up this, this insecurity. The, the ego is inherently insecure because there's only one little me and there's all of you. And so how am I going to cope? So that, you know, that's the ego's job is coping, I would say. Um, and so one can become uh, uh, tyrannized uh, by, by that ego. And, uh, and that's um, a big burden. So, you know, the perfectionistic striving uh, or the feeling terribly insecure or, you know, those two things are uh, two aspects, two sides of one coin. And... Um, uh, 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 there can be a big drive uh, uh, to like, how do I, how can I shut this voice up? You know, how can I get, and that's where alcoholism or drug use, you, you know, like, oh, I could, finally I can be relieved for a few moments of, uh, of that voice in my head or that perfectionistic striving, et cetera. So that's the double bind of the ego. And then if I go back to my question just a moment ago, it's like, yeah. what is, why, why is there this thread from top performers? And would you then, if you connect to what you just had to say about the ego, would it be somehow this thread of people who uh, either appear enlightened or more connected, uh, more balanced, understood, whatever the attributes that we would say and folks that we appreciate and admire, is it, what is the relationship that 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 they you would say they have with their ego? Because it's not a control, it's not a manage. It's a yeah. What what is it about you know the, these you know high performers and the thread as I suggested that it just seems it's very it's very common that the the people that I've had on this show there is a mindfulness an awareness some sort of meditation or prayer that is a I would say the 80th percentile going through the show of these world's top performers have this. So what is the relationship that they have with their ego? Yeah. Well, um, I wrote a book. I wrote a book once about 20 years ago now that was called uh, going to pieces without falling apart. So, and, uh, which I, is, I think my best title. So, but I stole it's it incredible. from somebody else, you know, uh, but so this idea of, 
going to pieces without falling apart comes out of a British psychoanalyst who studied mothers and young children. Uh, uh, and what he found was that uh, in, the, in the kids, in the, in the young children and in the parents who totally emphasized just performance, just ego, you, you know, that those, those kids developed what he called a, a kind of false self you know, a, a, a caretaker self, like they're, they were all, the ego was too strong and the kids went too early to their thinking minds to try to manage the, you know, everything. That, that for in a more benign environment, the parents knew how to give the kids enough space where they didn't feel abandoned by the mother or by the parents, now we would say. They didn't feel abandoned, but they didn't feel intruded upon so that they could actually play in the next room, knowing that the parents were there, but not bothering them all the time, you know? So this idea of play, that's the going to pieces, because when a, when a child plays or when a musician plays or when an actor performs or when a writer writes or when a, when a, um, a basketball player plays, th this idea of play extends from uh, infancy, young childhood, all the way into adulthood, and that in order to tap into the imagination or into the unconscious, however, whatever words you want to put on it, in order to play in the greatest sense or to create, to make art, it, we have to be able to uh, have fluidity with the ego. That's the going to pieces without falling apart. The, the ego is important, but it doesn't have to rule us. It doesn't have to become rigid and over-defining. You know, it can be flexible. So it's this the flexibility of the of the of the ego, so that there can be periods of letting go, periods of relaxation, but not just physical relaxation, like emotional, mental, imaginative relaxation. I think that's that's how I would describe what, what you're asking about. And I, and so I think it's not just in like the great. My, the great uh, uh, artists, but I think everyone has that capacity and they, they experience it in, in different ways. Well, again, just a couple of the book titles for those folks. You, you mentioned Going to Pieces Without Falling Apart, A Buddhist Perspective on Wholeness, which was a 1998 book, if I'm not mistaken. Um, another one, Going on Being, Buddhism and the Way of Change. Another, Trauma of Everyday, uh, of the 2013 title. <laughs> Everyday uh, life, trauma not, of everyday yeah, life. Oh, sorry. Uh, yeah, sorry. The trauma of everyday life. Advice not given, a guide to getting over yourself. So if we can pull on this, that was a, a 20, 2018 title, yeah. right? The themes are consistent. <laughs> yes. And, and that's, <laughs> yeah. you know, this is why I'm trotting out the idea of the ego because, so let's talk about this, the, the guide to getting over yourself. Is it true then uh, that these folks, you said, everyone has access to this. I'm using yeah. it as the a thread of top performers. And is it then that this interplay with the ego, it's there just enough, but you can give it up when need be, you know, yeah. flow states. It is the ability to get over yourself trainable. Oh yeah. Because doesn't that, you know, I read the, uh, the, the uh, Harvard uh, Gazette piece that, that opens with that question, right? It's like, <laughs> the the subtitle of your book seems to suggest the impossible. So you're here, you, you've written about it at length. 
the master question then, how do we have this relationship with our ego that you have just helped us identify is the right, the right relationship or a healthy relationship to be in with the ego? Clearly, if we could just make a list, please, and we could all just check the boxes, that would be great. I know it's, you've been studying it for your whole life, but where does one begin? Uh, oh, I think one can begin in, in any number of places, but I, but I, I think that both meditation and psychotherapy, you know, amongst many other uh, practices and traditions that are all about training the mind, training the self to get over the self, training the mind to tap into its deeper potential, you, you, you know, training attention. It starts with training attention and it starts with examining the uh, the concepts, you, you know, the concepts, the mental structures that are ruling us unconsciously that we, that we, you know, I'm the kind of person who, you know, I can, I'm good at this. I'm not good at that. You, you know, all the, all the, uh, the ways we have identified ourselves to ourselves. One of the things that Ramdas he always used to say when he would start a lecture or whatever, uh, uh, you're not who you think you are. You know, and just that you're not who you think you are. We're like, oh, really? I'm not who I. I'm not who I thought I was. Like, what a relief, <laughs> you know. So, and that's what uh, people are always asking me. Uh, you know, like, how do you bring the mindfulness? How do you bring Buddhist psychology into your work as a therapist? And uh, I was always actually very resistant to answering that question because. I didn't want to be just teaching my patients how to meditate. I, you know, it doesn't really work if you impose it on people. They have to, they have to discover it for themselves because it's hard work actually try, working with your own mind. Uh, but I wanted to use being a therapist in a in a slightly more insidious way. You know, to uh, to use the relationship, to use the trust that's established in the relationship to help people examine where they were holding themselves back and then to release it. So how to do that deftly, you know, in, in uh, conversation, I, I never really wanted to, to define that too much because I didn't really know how I was doing it. I was having to make it up on the spot. But this, in writing this latest book, I tried to, to uh, actually write, I took a year's worth of psychotherapy sessions where I thought something of that was happening and I tried to write them down as, as um, literally as possible, and then to and then to open it up to to try to see oh where was the Buddhist influence you know what what am I doing, um, and um, and so I so I think therapy is just as powerful uh, a, a tool as med, as meditation can be, and and uh, and that the two together when they're influencing each other might be making something even something new, you know that could help people. That's what I found profound about your most recent work, this, the exploration of the therapeutic relationship, the relationship that one has with, one thera with one's therapist, with the therapy itself. Yeah. What, 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 what uh, inspired you to pull on that thread? Because that is, there's a, a meta, sort of a metacognition at work here. What, what inspired you to to study the study of the therapeutic relationship. And what did you find when you pulled on that thread? Well, the, 
the study of the ther- that's mostly what I'm doing. Like all the all the writing I've done has been on the side. Like I I set one day a week aside to write, and the rest of the time I've just been seeing patients. So, um, uh, and I I think I think of myself more as a just as a therapist, and then the writing uh, has surprised me when it when it's happened. Um, but because that question is always arising as to, to uh, well, what is what really what how are you integrating these things and and uh, and because really I have been just making it up uh, as I've been going along, um, and I didn't want to write the same book uh, over again, which is what tends to happen, <laughs> you know, um, even though it changes because I'm changing, but. Uh, but I, I wanted to approach my writing time a little bit differently, and I didn't quite know um, if I had anything left to say. So, uh, so I decided, okay, why don't you just focus on what you're doing anyway? And uh, and I and I made myself, uh, you know, write down these single one, pick one session a week, and write down what happened. I, I was sort of, um, I don't take a lot of notes. Uh, normally in uh, in my therapy work, only if I'm prescribing a medicine or if, if someone tells me something that I, I know I better try to remember this because, you know, but I don't take a lot of notes. But for this, I decided, you know, actually, as soon as the session ended, I would write it down as much as I could remember accurately. And then over the weekend, I would type it up. And I, I did that for a year. Uh, um just one, one or two sessions a week, basically. And um, as a project, not knowing that it would be a book, just like, okay, this is what I can do with my writing time. Uh, and, I, and I didn't even look at this. I didn't read it over until the year was up. Uh, and, and then I read it over and I saw, oh, there's something, I, I think there's something here. Um, I, I think I, maybe I could tease out some of what I'm actually doing, you know? And I showed I showed what I had to my editor, who I've worked with over for a couple of books, who I really trust. And she said, I, "Yeah, I think there's something here, but I think the only through line because you're picking different patients every time. The only through line really is you. So what what we need is for you to go through it and write a reflection or a commentary about like we need to see what you're thinking." you know, in order, not just what you're doing, but what's, what's the background, you know? So I did that in the first year of COVID and that was a whole project. That's really what, where the book, emer- how the book emerged. And I learned, uh, I learned something. I feel like I learned a lot uh, in doing that. Um, and so what did I learn? I tried to say in the book, what I learned that, that, um, uh, that my effort is always in disrupting the systems that people are operating with about themselves. So, so how can I disrupt, how am I disrupting them in different ways? Sometimes with humor, sometimes by pointing out how it just doesn't make sense. You, you know, some, sometimes um, uh, by just being surprising and, and what I'm saying, you know, talking about the mundane instead of trying to be a therapist who's finding the original trauma that made someone who they are, you know, just showing them that, oh, their own minds are, are capable of uh, releasing that thought. You know, that's what you learn from meditation, that a, a thought is nothing. 
you know, a thought, is, it's so evanescent. A thought is just a thought. Like, why do we torture ourselves with them? So it, I think it's possible in therapy to give people that, that um, revelation and then it's, then they can take it and run with it. So I want to, I want to go back to thoughts and trauma. So I'm going to put those on our little pin board here, but before I do that, uh, to, to close the loop on this current um, little journey that we're on, I want to read something to you and then ask you a question based on my own experience. So the, the, I'm reading some of the materials written about your most recent book. And again, the title for those listening is the Zen of therapy, uncovering a hidden, hidden kindness in life. So you, the, I'm going to read about the writing is this reveals how a therapist can help patients cultivate a sense that there is something magical, something wonderful and something to trust running through our lives, no matter how fraught they have been or might become. For when we realize how readily we have misinterpreted ourselves, when we stop clinging to our falsely conceived constructs, when we touch the ground of being, we come home. So hold on to that thought for a second. And now I'm going to juxtapose some of this with my own experience here, which is prior to going into this universe, this universe of thought and meditation and mindfulness and awareness, I believed and I told myself the story that part of why I had achieved anything in my life that I was willing to cheer about or that I got accolades for or, uh, or fist bumps or good job kid from my parents or teachers or career counselors was because of grit and because of grinding and hard work. And, and so I was resistant early on to having a relationship with myself that felt anything like magic or felt anything like a coming home. Mm -hmm. And I believe that there are a lot of people in our Western world and a lot of people that I talk to in, in my universe that have told themselves a similar story. This is so different than what I just read about magic and uh, trust and joy and connection despite, you know, how, how frayed these things may have become. So can you, using my own experience of, yeah, I didn't trust this stuff, help, help me. <laughs> what, no, what would you prescribe all, to me? I, I've, all, I've come through this a little bit, but. No, first of all, there's already magic in the grit. You, you know, the fact that you, you, using you, what you just said, the fact that you uh, had that drive and and could devote yourself with that with that kind of um, uh, uh, energy, you know, with that kind of effort, uh, uh, um, in, already inspired by something, going for something, you, you know, there's that that's already, you, you know, wonderful. So it's all, and I see a lot of a lot of people who come to me for therapy uh, have similar experiences where they they have already worked through a lot of adversity or achieved something, you know, that they're really proud of, but, but, you know, we're never satisfied, you, you know, you, as far as you, you, you know, you get to one level and, 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 okay, how come I'm still not happy, you, you know, and what's missing, what's missing now. So, so, you know, you might never come to a therapist, you know, it might be enough that you had already achieved what you'd achieved. And now it's like, okay, I'm happy. I'm in that case, fine. 
but if there still was, you know, some kind of, okay, what, what's missing, you, you know, um, I, I always like to think like doing, you know, doing and being, doing and being are like the two sides of what we're capable of, you know, and um, many of us are so pushed on the doing side, like we just think it's all about doing, like, you know, achieving, accumulating, et cetera, uh, that, we, that we neglect the being side. And so what's the being side about? You know, well, it's about love. It's about relationship. It's about inspiration. It's about creativity, you know, and it's about being, you know, it's about being okay with this, with, with uh, uh, transience, with temporariness, with what we cannot control, you know, with, with chaos that is uh, unfortunately all around us, you know, so, um, so uh, that aspect of things is often neglected and and i think is one of the reasons that otherwise high achieving and successful people still seek out either therapy or spirituals you know some kind of spiritual life they know deep down you know something's missing and so how do you mm-hmm. how do you find that how do you get there you know what's the path you know now that you just put it that way that seems to me to be the thread <laughs> there's this inter- interrelationship between, you know, high performers realizing, get to the top of the mountain and realizing that there's nothing there <laughs> and having to look for another thing. And, and at some point recognizing that the doing is, 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 is there's a big absence there and it's the being part. So I don't know if it's the therapy that helps the achievement or it's the achievement that conduces us to therapy. Um, yeah, it can, it can work I, I, either way. And it's not that there's nothing there. There's so much yeah. there, you know, there's so much there to be grateful for and proud of, but there's still a sense of, okay, what, what, what else? So in, in, in a way that the thing that's been driving us the whole time, you know, this, that same grit is still looking for the next thing, you, you know, but you know, you've realized, okay, it's not... A, how many accolades, how much money, like what, what, what else could it be, you, you know? And uh, the Dalai Lama always said, you know, it's a selfish thing that propels us, but, but you end up finding often that it's, it's in the giving to others in some way that, that that's the most selfish thing because that, actually that makes you feel better than anything. Um, and, and often that's the, even people who come to meditation and do a lot of inner work, then the, the resolution of all that inner work is to come back out into the world and figure out how to give back. You know, that's what, cause, cause it's not just all about your own little ego. We're actually all, uh, uh all so connected that, that, um, it, it matters what each individual does. I had uh, a, a guest on the show, uh, Sherry Huber and one of her colleagues, Ashwini, uh, they are monks and hmm. in the Buddhist tradition and, uh, my wife has studied with with uh, that monastery for some time, and when my wife was getting into this early, I was I struggle as um, just me in my own flesh with my own traumas and experiences in life. How this is a question I ask them, and I've asked my wife a lot, and I'm curious your your answer. How does one both be driven and be okay with being because being there's not a lot, you know, 
uh, one may say, you know, whatever you, you may judge this, but one may say, you know, being is the absence of doing mm-hmm. and, and so how does one both have goals and strive and still find peace with whatever outcome? How were we not attached to the outcome? How do those two coexist? Um, I think that, I think being and doing do coexist. It's not. It's they they complement each other. It's not so much that being is the absence of doing. It, it's that it's that being gives context to doing. Be you know, and and doing gives context to being. So I I, I think it's the ability to hold both to be both. Mm. Like even in um, even in in sexual relations, you know, to like bring it down to, to that level. If, if it's only about doing, you, you know, it's like, okay, you did it, you, you know, but where were you, you know, like what, what did you, where, where was the co-mingling, you know, like what's the, what's the spiritual, you know, or the soul aspect or the heart aspect or, you know, of the, of the sexual relation, you know, where, where does that come? You know, and and one has to learn to relax into the beingness that's there, even in sexual relations. You know, because we're all so focused on, at least the men uh, are so focused on the on performance. You know, so and in in the Buddhist in the esoteric Buddhist world, they use that example. You, you know, like they say the 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 closest you can come in regular life to the liberation, the, the liberative quality of being that comes from meditation is in sexual relations, you know? And they, they, um, they talk about the four stages of highest yoga tantra as like falling in love, like um, looking, like when you make eye contact, looking, smiling, embracing, and orgasm. Those are the nicknames for the four highest levels of realization. So I, but I think we can all understand that, you know, from down yeah. here. Is it something of a preference? How do we not become attached to an outcome? I, I recognize that at different times in my experience, and as I've asked others around their journey to achieve something, whether it's a gold medalist or, or a business person or something, I have heard two different uh, experiences. I've heard the experience of visualizing that you're going to win and knowing you're going to do it and, and, and this sort of obsessed obsession on the outcome. And then I've also experienced myself and heard from others that there is a detachment. They were successful because they were detached from the outcome and they were in the moment. I'm sure in your, in your work, you've seen the, you know, the conflation of these two things. I'm wondering, is one right? Are they both are they both real? Like, what, how, how do we reconcile this? Um, they both might be wrong. I think you have to you have to assume that both might be wrong. Also, um, uh, I think I think either can work and both can mess up. Um, I I have a uh, I, I have a patient uh, uh, who's a, a very good golfer, and I don't play golf, but he but he uh, talks about it a lot, and he talks about how there's a um, uh, it's a, both in golf and in poker. He talks about it that there's a uh, an expression that I think it's with poker about being on tilt. That you can be on tilt when you're uh, 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 over involved, too anxious, trying too hard to like 
uh, uh, to win back the losses in poker or to hit the good shot in, in golf. And that in poker, like the other players know when you're on tilt and they'll take advantage of it, you know, so that the, the obsessive need to achieve can be the downfall, you know, cause it, it, it gets you ahead of yourself. And that, and that, you know, we know there are all those like books about the inner game of golf and the inner game of tennis or the, the flow state in basketball, you, you know, that when you're able to put your mind in that um, going to pieces without falling apart place, you know, where you're just in the flow and you're, you're just like hitting the ball, but you're not thinking about uh, winning uh, that, the your inherent intelligence that's in your body that knows the sport can just do the thing you know sink the be uh, steph curry or whoever you're trying to be you know um and uh or a dancer you, i mean i think it but but i think that that thing of visualizing you know that's a kind of meditation the the visualizing of i'm going to win the gold medal and seeing the whole thing that's that can be a powerful uh, yoking of the mind to the intent, you know, and that's another form of meditation. That's the thing about meditation. Uh, the the Eastern psychologists that this is what they studied. They didn't know anything. They they didn't not they didn't know anything. They didn't study the external world the way the Western science did. But they really studied the internal world. So there's like you know a thousand kinds of meditation. You can visualize for achievement, that's meditation. You, you can learn to relax the mind into the awareness that's already present, you know, that underlies all of our experience. That's a different kind of meditation. The, the, the uh, effortful or non-effortful manipulation of attention, that's meditation. So learning what's going to work in any given situation, that's experimenting, you know, and that's improvisation. And everyone, it's going to be different for everybody you know, I think bottom line. One of the things I appreciate about your work in preparing for our conversation today is this allowance. There's sort of like a, 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 a lack of rigidity and allowance for so many, so many um, things that you just described with meditation being visualization. It's not like, nope, visualization is attachment to the outcome. You got to not be attached. So this, um, I think that's that, that's from being a therapist. That I think that no, really, I think that that's what makes a therapist a therapist is that sense of allowance. Because everybody, people come, people are so, you, you know, ashamed or guilty or afraid or you, you know uptight or angry or you know frustrated. And the first step, I mean, I think I learned this from meditation with with myself. Uh, but the first step is making room for whatever it is. You, you know, that's the, when the, when the Buddha taught, the Buddha's famous psychological teaching is the four noble truths, you know, and the first truth is always translated as life is suffering, which is like such a downer. Um, but that isn't really what he said. He, he used the word, he used the word dukkha. That's always translated as suffering. But dukkha means if you take the word apart, do ka, ka's face and du is like it's difficult or hard it's hard to face so the buddha his first noble truth is that there's an aspect to life no matter how successful you are how much you've achieved there's an aspect to life that's hard to face and we don't want to face it 
you know, old age, illness, death, uh, COVID, what, you, you know, disappointment, separation, loss, illness, you know, to repeat myself. Um, uh, uh, and so his whole, the, the, the whole teaching is how do you learn to face what, what we don't want to face, you know, and that in do, that doing that, allowing it to surface, allowing it to come into awareness is liberating. That's what's liberating, you know, it, and the material liberates itself. It liberate, it floats into awareness and then it, you know, and then it's like, oh, okay, that's all it was, you know. Um, and so that as a therapist, I think that even if you're not trained in Buddhist thought, that's what a good therapist is conveying, you know, or that's what a therapist is being, you know, and it gets communicated. Let's, so this beautiful marriage that you have, um, cultivated between Western therapy, Eastern Buddhist tradition. Let's say that, uh, this is a stretch, but I want you to try Try this with me here. That, okay. that it's almost if we play fill in the blank, the most common challenge that you see when you see patients is fill in the blank. And the prescription that you give using all of your faculties, Eastern and Western for that condition or that disposition or whatever the fill in the blank was the, 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 the advice that you give and you've written a, bit, a book about how to give advice without giving advice. So this is a, I realize there's some meta stuff going on here, but the most common challenge that your patients that you're aware of is X and what you know, Doctor Mark sure. would would prescribe is why. What's the X and the uh, Y? Uh, the most common challenge. First, I thought you were asking the most common challenge for me as the therapist, but I won't answer that question. Uh, the most <laughs> common challenge, the most common challenge for the patients, I would say, is judgment, some kind of judgment, and the prescription uh, for that is kindness. So. You know, kindness to you, oneself, how, kindness externally, or yeah, just kindness kind of, to well, the, what the the therapist function I think is kindness, but they, but that's not what I'm saying in answering your question. The 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 prescript the internal prescription is like kindness, which I preferred that word to compassion, but we could use compassion if we wanted to. Kindness for the person that you think you are, you know, or kindness for the child in you that suffered or for the woman in you that suffered or what, whatever, you know, kindness towards the self that you imagine yourself to be, or that you actually have been, you know, cause we have that meta, you've used that meta word a couple of times. We, we, as human beings, we have that meta capacity, you know, to be both subject and object to ourselves. We, we can be the suffering, you, you know, cranky, frustrated, uh, it, person in pain, but, and, but we also can turn our minds on ourselves, you, you know, or, turn, or open our hearts to ourselves. It's another way of saying the same thing. And that capacity of, uh, it's a kind of forgiveness to oneself or about oneself, I think, that uh, that capacity is uh, inherent uh, um, and, and can be learned. And does the practice of learning that is it sort of like meditation? You're just returning to the breath every time. It's the process of bringing back. It's the process of just directing awareness. 
Is it the, is it a similar experience? Is the training I think, kind? I, um, I think the um, what you're describing the watching the breath and the bringing the mind uh, back when it wanders and that kind of, that's sort of like the technology, you know, the technology of the sacred in a way. Uh, but behind that, you, you know, you can do that technology in a in a rigid, obsessive, uh, judging way. Like you know, like oh, my mind wandered, and I can never really feel the breath. And what's wrong with me? And you know, thinking again. And you know, are you in my mind, Doctor Mark? Because <laughs> I'm in everybody's time. mind. This is my <laughs> mind. But we're all the same. Is the thing. We're all the same. And so to learn, so so seeing that. You know, once you see, oh, I'm doing it that way, like, obviously that's wrong, you, you know. Uh, and so what, so the attitude behind that is really more important, I think. But, and, and they feed each other. Doing that repetitively, you learn how to be kind to yourself because it, it's hopeless otherwise because your mind is impossible, you know. It, does, it doesn't quiet down because you tell it to. Well, I was intrigued by the subtitle and... Now we've stumbled here on kindness, which is to me a, a, a big unlock. Again, the Zen of therapy, uncovering a hidden kindness in life. Why is our kindness hidden? Uh, because it, it's, um, its origin is in, the, um, uh, is in our early life that we can't remember. It's, its origin is in the, you, I would call it the maternal capacity, but it doesn't just have to come from the mother. Uh, but, but inherently, when we have a baby, we're, we're kind to it, whoever we are. Very, very rare that one isn't, you know. And, and uh, so immediately, the, this, this infant is pulling us out of ourselves, you know, and it's pulling on this quality. And we learn, it's there in the baby. So the baby and the parent connect, their eyes connect, you know. Their bodies connect. Their even their orifices connect. You know, um, and so that it's a latent it's a latent capacity. It's there in the parent. It emerges. Where does it come from? You know, it's just evoked by the baby, and the but it's there already in the baby. So uh, and there are these Tibetan uh, Buddhist practices where you imagine all beings as your mother, you know, or you imagine yourself as being mother to all beings, you, you know, and that's a way of of pulling on this hidden, but also latent, but also inherent quality that's about being human. It's part of being a mammal, you know, but it, it can infuse our mind. You know, it's like there, it's really there in us. It wants to come out. And is the training of kindness, specifically the kindness that we were talking about a moment ago, Kind, you know, I, I say the, word, the most important words in the world are the ones we say to ourselves. I, re, 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 I remind yes. myself of that phrase and, and those listeners or the listeners of the show uh, often is, is that the best, is that, is that a place to start this practice, this kindness I, practice? I, and how do we recognize think, it? Yeah. Um, uh, the place to start is seeing the judgments. Like you were asking, you know, the X and the Y. The place to start is just seeing how judgmental you, if, if your mind is like my mind, you, you know, uh, how judgmental, how anxious, how afraid, you know, fear uh, uh, is, is just to recognize, the, you, you know, those tendencies and how uh, restrictive those, you know, you know, what a drag that is and how we would like to be free from that. That's the place to start. 
and then the the to apply kindness to those um, uh, inherently uh, uh, unpleasant feelings, you, you know, rather than judging them, uh, um, rather than judging the judging, etc. You know, um, that's the, that's the place to start. I would say. All right, I promised that we would revisit this uh, ominous term on the pin board here that I stuck a pin in a while ago, uh, which is trauma. Our we all have it um, from all kinds of aspects of our childhood. I'm wondering right now there's someone uh, there's some of us who are aware of trauma or there are traumas in our life rather that we are aware of. There are traumas in our lives that we are not aware of. Uh, It's not uncommon for me when I'm thinking about this and having a conversation with someone that a person will say like, oh, I don't have fill in the blank. And I'm like, wow, wouldn't that be awesome to, (laughs) to, to not have this aspect of childhood trauma? But for people who may, you know, may be averse to the term or, you know, be disconnected from it, think that it doesn't apply. How, how could you, can you shine a flashlight on that for us and help people understand um, your view on trauma that we all have it or we don't or whatever your view is and, sure. um, and how it manifests and, and yeah, presumably well, that's a, what your, 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 your work is about remedying some of these things. Being a therapist is about that, you, you know, cause people, people are coming either uh, for one reason or another, but it, you could usually trace it back to something involving trauma. If we want to use that word, um, they didn't have that word trauma in the, in the, in the Buddha's time, you know, so he, he used that word I was talking about before, which was dukkha, you know, which is that there's some, there's always something, there's, there's always something that's hard to face, you know, um, the, the people who write about trauma in our world, they, they talk about uh, uh, big T trauma and, and little T trauma. So the big T trauma is what we read about in the news and, you know, the tornadoes or the hurricanes or the tsunamis or the fires or uh, murders or uh, car accidents or, you know, you, you, COVID even could be. Um, but so we all sort of have an understanding of the big T trauma and it's very possible to get through a life uh, where you're not directly affected by what's called big T trauma. So uh, if you're only going to talk about trauma that way, not everyone experiences it. And we're all kind of scared that we will and hoping that we won't and doing obsessive rituals to try to prevent it from hitting us, you know, from our own selfish points of view. Um, And then hoping that people who are affected by the big T trauma, the shootings or whatever, that they'll get back to normal as quickly as possible so we don't have to uh, think about it that much. but the, the, the little t trauma um, is also sometimes talked about as developmental trauma or re- relational trauma. And that's more the kind of trauma that you were referring to that could happen in childhood, where there can be trauma of something bad happening, like a parent who's depressed or alcoholic or dies. Um, or there's trauma where nothing happened when something should have, you know, where there's too much neglect. Um, even in a, a, you know, a middle-class household where there's enough food and money and so on, but the parents are distracted because they're so busy achieving uh, and they haven't bothered to like play with the kids or put them to bed or, you know, you're just left alone too much or 
you're having to perform for your supper instead of just being, you know, seen for who you are, that kind of business. So, so I would class all of that as a kind of trauma. And um, when I was writing about this from the Buddhist perspective, I made a big deal out of the fact that in the, the, um, uh, the history, the life history of the Buddha, his mother dies when he's a week old which isn't always talked about. Uh, she gives birth to him and then she's there for a week and then she dies. And uh, I think that was an early trauma for the Buddha that he lost his connection to the mother. And that's what led him to leave his own wife and child after his uh, child was born. And that he was in some way trying to rediscover this maternal capacity that had been taken away from him. And that's what meditation was all about. So that was a kind of reductionistic, you know, view from a psychoanalytic perspective, uh, talking about how there's this kind of relational or developmental or little t trauma, even in the Buddha's story. But I think a lot of us are suffering from that. Um, and that brings some people to therapy because they have a feeling of absence or emptiness or, you know, what's wrong with me or, you know, and, um, uh, uh, that both therapy and meditation can be very healing for that. So that so there's the big T trauma, the little T trauma, and then just the inevitable traumas of uh, aging and illness and death, that even if we find love, uh, that one of us is usually destined to see the other one die. And uh, uh, our parents are going to die or our parents lose their children or, you know, it, we can't... Uh, as proficient as we are scientifically and as developed as our egos are, we can't avert every, uh, everything that we can't predict, you, you know? And so that's a kind of trauma. And so the, um, both meditation and therapy are like uh, useful for training our minds to be able to go with the flow of uh, the unpredictable uh, and to be able to rest in uncertainty when we have to, not that we don't, try as hard as we can to solve the problems and live a good life, but that uh, we're, we're, we're destined to uh, uh, come up against uncertainty and, and uh, we can struggle against it or we can learn how to be with it. Thank you so much for so eloquently weaving together the wisdom of these two worlds. I've long looked for something that was able to, you know, hold, true many of the the experiences that those of us who've grown up in the west have been raised with that make sense to us and you know have this infusion of the east that which i have practiced and felt and to to so eloquently weave the wisdom of those two together in your work and to then write about your process as a therapist of doing it um congratulations on the new book it's profound uh, again, for those listening, the Zen of therapy, uncovering a hidden kindness in life. And of course, I, I shared a, a bunch of other titles that you've written. Um, incredibly prolific. I want to say thank you so much for for doing the work. And is there anywhere else in the world you would steer the? I mean, we're this community is great at helping authors whose books are launching. You know, and we're going to time the launch of your show of the show here around. Uh, your your the publication of your new book in January. What is there anywhere else you would steer us aside from your new work, knowing that this community is full of 
creators and entrepreneurs, people who aspire to be the best versions of themselves, where would they, where would you steer this community in your, in your world? Um, I, w- I was very touched that um, a, a friend of mine named uh, Dan Harris, uh, he, oh, yeah. he, he, was a, he was a newscaster on ABC, you know, but he, he got in through, a little bit through my influence. He, he got into this whole mindfulness world. And um, he has a, um, uh, you know, an app and a podcast, all this stuff. He wrote a book called 10% Happier. That was about his discovery. But he got, my, he got Joseph Goldstein, who I, uh, you know, who I uh, uh, owe a lot to, who I think is a great meditation teacher. He got Joseph into the studio uh, and uh, got Joseph to record his meditation instruction uh, that he then, uh, you know, is repurposing uh, on, on his 10% uh, app. So not to, not to suggest a competing thing. I don't want to be, you know, but, uh, <laughs> um, but that's a real, that's opened the doors to a lot of people. So, um, uh, that's, that's one good platform that I would say people could look to. Excellent. We'll put that in the show notes. And of course, uh, this community will purchase your latest book. Congratulations. Thank you so much for sharing uh, the last 75 minutes with us. Grateful for your time. And thanks for listening wisdom. to me. And our, our paths will cross again, I'm sure. Okay. And thanks so much for being the show it's again, been a pleasure, uh, Dr. Mark Epstein. Thank you so much. Uh, for everyone out there in the world, we, uh, we bid you adieu until next time. All right. That's it for the show today. But Hey, before you go, I want to just make one extra point. And that is, it's my hope, my goal, the reason that we at Creative Live produce this show, I've been doing this for 10 years now, the goal is to add value to your life. And my hope is that if you are applying these things, the things that you learn uh, from today's show or previous episodes, my belief is that you will get to where you want to go more quickly and that your life will be more fulfilled. So if that's working for you, I'm dying to hear your feedback, whether that's in reviews, on any of the podcast app or platforms that you listen or on social, I pay attention to all those things. Or of course, you can text me at uh, 206-309-5177 on social. You know, I'm listening to your takeaways and the guests that you want to see on the show and recommendations for, for topics that we can cover in the future. And what I want to know is that this is working for you. And if you want to put this to work, the concepts, I can't recommend enough that you check out a subscription to Creative Live. The way you check that out is go to creativelive.com slash creator pass. You can get a subscription for like, I think it averages out to be like 12 or something, 12 bucks a month for 2000 classes. Those are always the next best steps in a follow-up to this podcast. So again, thank you so much for uh, being a part of the community here around the show, around the work that I do in the world. Thank you so much for paying attention. And I want you to know that I am paying attention to you, your work, and everything that you're sharing out there about the show. So thanks, and I'll see you next time.